You are listening to Sermon Select on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. If you take your Bibles now for our New Testament scripture reading, the sermon reading, and turn to the book of Revelation in chapter 12. This is found on page 1034 in the Pew Bible. Now, as we're returning to our series in the book of Revelation after a brief break, I want us to remember or recall those first three cycles of seven that we saw in the first 11 chapters of the book. Remember, the book begins with the seven letters to the churches in which Christ walks among his lampstands and reveals the pressures to compromise, pressing upon Christians from both within and without. And he calls his churches to remain faithful and to overcome. And then in the opening of the seven seals, that second cycle, we see the lamb who is worthy to take up the scroll and to open the seals. And through that cycle of visions, the focus is upon what happens to Christians as God sends judgments upon the earth in this time between Christ's first and second advent and at the very end, how his people are sealed and kept secure. But then we saw in the third cycle the blowing of the seven trumpets. There the focus shifted a bit to focus upon what happens to the unrepentant wicked as God sends these judgments upon the earth. And once again, we see the call in that section, the call for Christians to be faithful witnesses in this time of trial and persecution as we await the final seventh trumpet to sound. Well, as we come now then to chapter 12, we are beginning this fourth cycle of visions. And wouldn't you know, there are seven sections within this fourth cycle as well. And this morning in chapter 12, we're looking at the first of these seven sections. In a real sense, chapter 12 is at the very center of the book of Revelation. It's really at the heart of the message of this book. And what it does is it gives us, as it were, a behind-the-scenes look as to what has been going on in the history of the world. It gives us... And through means of symbols and signs, the big picture of what God is doing. What we see is it reveals to us how the devil is the deeper source behind the persecution of God's people that's been described in the first half of the book. And at the same time, how Christ is the one who has decisively defeated Satan and who continues to faithfully protect and provide for his people. So follow along with me now as I read the beginning of verse 1 and all the way to almost the end of the chapter. Hear now God's holy, inspired, infallible, and inerrant word. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, And on her head a crown of twelve stars. 
She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she was to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short." And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away like a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together again. Our Heavenly Father, We know that you have installed your king on Mount Zion, your holy hill. And Lord Jesus, you are ruling and reigning over all things. We also know that at present, Lord, we do not yet see everything in subjection to you. But Lord, we ask that through this passage, through this portion of your word, you would once again give us eyes this morning to see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Help us to see our Savior clearly this morning, to adore him and to live for him. As a result, we pray in Christ's name, amen. As World War I began, war from 1914 to 1918 that drew in so many nations of the earth, 
That English author, H.G. Wells, wrote several articles about this war. And in one of those articles, he said that this war would be the war that will end wars. Now he believed that because uh, he thought it was German militarism that sparked everything. And through this war, once the Germans were defeated, the world would have no reason to fight ever again. Now, would that it was so, but of course you and I know that was sadly not the case. Wars and rumors of wars have continued ever since the Great War, as it was called, occurred. Of course, soon after World War I came World War II. And then there's the Korean War, the Vietnam War, Desert Storm, War with Iraq, Afghanistan. And that's only thinking about wars the U.S. has been involved in. How many other wars have occurred since that time among the nations around the world? How many wars are going on at present, even right now? No, that was not the war to end all wars. But the good news is this. There is one war, one war that will truly end all wars. The war of all wars, the cosmic conflict that is pictured for us here in our passage this morning. A conflict raging between the devil and his angels, the demons and his children on one side, and Christ and his angels and his children, his people, on the other. The great war that is the greatest of all wars. In one sense, the war that is behind every other war. Not only political wars, but the wars that rage in your own hearts. So this morning I want us to consider the sweeping history of this spiritual war that's given to us in this great chapter. We kind of can see this war in, in different segments. In three, three kind of sections of this chapter. First, the war begun on earth against the coming seed of the woman. That's what we find in verses 1 to 6. The war begun on earth against the coming seed of the woman. And then secondly, we'll see the war reflected in heaven when Satan is thrown down to earth, verses 7 through 12. And then lastly, the war continues on earth against Christ's church in verses 13 to 17. So first, let's consider the war begun on earth against this coming seed of the woman in verses 1 to 6. And the first thing that John sees in this great vision is a great sign in heaven, a woman. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, the head, a crown of 12 stars. Who is she? Who is this woman? Certainly some have thought that it's an actual individual woman that's being spoken of. Some have said this must be speaking of Eve. The Roman Catholic Church says that this must be the Virgin Mary in her splendor. After all, this is a woman who's described as the mother of the Messiah. But you see, John makes clear, as we've been seeing throughout the book of Revelation, that what we have here is not one literal woman, but a sign this woman is a sign that he saw in heaven. In other words, it's a symbol. And in this chapter, the woman symbolizes the people of God. It represents both Old Testament Israel and even the New Testament church. 
And so in that sense, it does include Eve and it does include Mary, but it's more than Eve or Mary. It's the people of God. And the focus here at the beginning of the chapter, of course, is upon the woman as Old Testament Israel. Notice again this description as, this, as we read it there in verse 1. She's clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. This is a description that's alluding back to something that we've heard before. Something that we heard in the book of Genesis. It's alluding to Joseph's dream. You remember the dream that he has there in Genesis 37, where he has a dream about the sun and the moon and 11 stars bowing down before him. You remember how Jacob was discerning enough to understand that the sun represented him, the moon was his mother, his wife, and these 11 stars were Joseph's brothers. In a real sense, we could say it was symbolic of the entirety of the Old Testament people of God at that time. And so it is, hearkening back to that, what we see, it's representative of God's Old Testament people. Consider some of the significance of these descriptions in the context of Revelation then. Clothed with the sun. Where else have we heard of someone being like the sun? But the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 16. His face shines like the sun shining in full strength. And so this is imagery talking about the people of God shining being clothed with the brightness and radiance of the glory of Christ. Not only that, there's this crown, a crown of 12 stars. Of course, you know how 12 is a significant number in this book. It certainly is referring in one sense then to the 12 tribes of Israel, but can also have reference to the 12 apostles. And so again, it's referring to the people of God. But notice it's crowns. So don't lose sight of, in the context of the book of Revelation, the fact that the woman is wearing these crowns points to her as the one who will overcome. For crowns, remember, are given to those who overcome. The letter, remember, in one of the letters Jesus wrote, he said to the church, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. And so what we have here, beloved, is a picture of the people of God as this beautiful woman clothed in splendor and the radiance of Christ overcoming the world. And so, dear Christian, one of the things for you to see here is how God sees you, how God sees his church, how God sees his people, and to be encouraged. And also be reminded that sometimes as we look around at the people of God on earth, we don't see one another that way. (laughs) But that is who we really are. And to remember that we are the beloved people of God. To be encouraged. While the world might despise the church of Christ, God cherishes you. But then notice, as we look at this woman In verse 2, we find that she is pregnant. She is with child. And she's crying out in birth pains and in agony. Something that many women in this room know much about. 
This points to the fact that the old covenant people of God are the line through whom the Messiah would come. You remember that this is one of the great blessings that Paul points to as he talks about what advantage was it to be a Jew? In Romans chapter 9, Paul writes this, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. It's through Old Covenant Israel that the Messiah comes. In a real sense, then, verse 2 is a summary of the whole story of the Old Testament. It's a summary of the whole purpose of the Old Testament, which really, beginning with Genesis 3.15, is about the coming seed of the woman. You remember those words of God as he curses the serpent and Adam and Eve over here, and he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her offspring and your offspring, and he, the offspring of the woman, the seed of the woman, shall bruise your head or crush your head, and you shall strike his heel. It's the promise of the coming seed of the woman. And you see from that very point on, what is Satan seeking to do but to destroy the woman and her line to prevent this seed of the woman from coming? You can see it right away. The first two children of Adam and Eve, who is it? Cain and Abel. And Cain, who we know from 1 John, is actually of the seed of the serpent, murders Abel, one who has faith. She's of the line of, he's of the line of faith. It's right away trying to destroy And there's a question, who's then going to carry on? Of course, God raises up Seth. People are calling upon the name of the Lord through Seth. And the whole story then of the Old Testament is how this line is traced through till we get to the promised Messiah and how it goes from Eve then to Seth, from Seth to Noah, from Noah to Shem, from Shem to Abraham, from Abraham to Isaac, from Isaac to Jacob or Israel, from Israel to to Judah, from Judah, to David. This is the whole story of the Old Testament. As Douglas Kelly says in his commentary, Old Testament Israel was pregnant with Christ for thousands of years. Israel was being used as a womb from which the Messiah would be born. Well, Thankfully, it wasn't an unlimited period of time, just like Women today are thankful that pregnancy is not an unlimited period of time. It lasts for only nine months. This is much longer than nine months. This was thousands of years, but it did come to an end. But the reality is, her labor was no easy labor. This woman, as she's described here, was filled with pain and with agony. And the cause of her pain and agony becomes all the more clear as we look at this second sign that appears in heaven. And there in verses 3 and 4 then, John sees another sign in heaven. And this time it's not a woman, but a great red dragon. What is this dragon? Who is this dragon? It's important for us to recognize that throughout the Old Testament, the imagery of a dragon is used to actually represent evil kingdoms and rulers who persecute God's people. So, for example, Ezekiel, speaking about 
Pharaoh, king of Egypt, says this in Ezekiel 29.3, Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams. And so it's used to represent these nations arrayed against God's people, these kings and rulers who persecute them. But as is made clear in verse 9, the dragon here stands for the devil himself as well. It's a reminder that he is the force behind the wicked kingdoms of the earth persecuting God's people. Notice then how this dragon is depicted there in verse 3. He's depicted as red, the great red dragon. Red in this context signifying one who is filled with fury and rage and murderous bloodlust. He's also described as having seven heads and ten horns. Again, you know the number seven, number ten. It's that which represents this idea of completeness. And here it's the completeness of his oppressive power and its worldwide effect. But then we also see him described as one who has seven diadems. You remember that seven diadems, that diadems are not the same as the Stephanos or or the, the victory wreath. The crown that's given to the victor at the end of a race. No, that's not what the word here. It's the diadem, that of ruling. What we see is these diadems represent his usurped earthly dominion. G.K. Beale puts it, the crowns represent the devil's false claims of sovereign universal authority in opposition to the true king of kings and lord of lords who also wears many diadems as we will see in Revelation chapter 19. His points to how Satan is that counterfeiter who's trying to counterfeit the work of God. This will become more clear to us next week as we look at chapter 13 and see how he counterfeits even the great work of Christ through the beasts. And so we have the great red dragon is this one who stands in opposition to the woman and to the child to be born. And notice the activity then of this dragon, how, how it's described there in verse 4. His great tail sweeps a third of the stars of heaven down to earth. Again, this must clearly be symbolic. It's not talking about a meteor shower coming down. But what is it referring to? Some see this as referring to the other angels that joined Satan or Lucifer in the rebellion against God in heaven. But it's more likely that that's not what's being referred to here. What's being referred to is Satan's persecution against God's people, his persecution against the woman, against the people of God. You see, the same language is used in Daniel chapter 8, verse 10. Listen to what it says there in the vision that Daniel has. It says, it, that is the little horn in the vision, grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. And in that context, that vision is actually referring to Antiochus Epiphanes and his persecution of the Jews and the stars then in that context being the Jewish people that were persecuted by him. 
And so I submit to you that what we have here is these stars are referring to God's people being persecuted throughout that whole Old Covenant, Old Testament period. That fits as well, doesn't it, with the crown of 12 stars, the 12 stars being the 12 tribes. It's the people of God being persecuted by the dragon. And what's the goal of this persecution? What is it that Satan was seeking to accomplish, even working through nations and kings and rulers to persecute? Well, it's clear, isn't it? He's standing there ready to devour the child, to destroy this coming seed of the woman, to prevent, if possible, the birth of this one that's prophesied is coming to crush his very head. And it was Satan, wasn't it, who influenced Cain to kill his godly brother Abel. It was Satan who was behind Pharaoh's evil order to kill all the male sons of Israel in Exodus chapter 1. It was Satan who influenced Saul with murderous rage against David, the Lord's anointed. It was Satan who incited wicked Haman to attempt to annihilate the Jews in the days of Esther. And it was Satan who tempted Herod with jealousy to send soldiers to Bethlehem to kill every male child two years old and under. This is the story of the Old Testament. This is the story of what was going on before the birth of Christ and even up to the birth of Christ. Do you see Satan warring against the coming seed of the woman? But what happened? What does the text tell us? What happened is, in the fullness of time, the woman gave birth to the male child. So we see in verse 5. She gave birth to a male child, one who's to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Clearly that's speaking about the one referred to in Psalm 2 as we read earlier. The Messiah, the Lord's anointed. And the dragon could not prevent his birth. Not only that, even when Satan thought that he'd finally won. You see, because on the cross, Satan thought, at least for a moment, that he had won. Finally, this one, this one who's destroyed me, is destroyed. He thought, finally, I can reign securely over my wicked kingdom and not have to worry But what does this text tell us as soon as this child is born? In a sense, it says he's caught up to God and to his throne. In that one verse, the whole life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ is packed. What you have is Jesus is the one who actually defeats death and the devil on the cross being raised on the third day and ascended to heaven to rule at the right hand of God over his kingdom of righteousness. He's the one who actually crushes the serpent's head there at the cross. And what his victory actually accomplishes in detail is filled out for us in verses 7 to 12, as we'll see in a moment. But notice what else happens in verse 6. It says, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. 
We notice that the woman, the people of God, escaped the devil as well by fleeing into the wilderness. And this too will be further filled out for us in verses 13 to 17. But before we move on, what I want you to see here in this first section, from verses 1 to 6, is the faithfulness of God to keep his promises to his people. To see how God is faithful. And that the purpose then of the whole Old Testament is to show us that while Satan may rage and seek to stop God from accomplishing what he's promised, he cannot and will not succeed. He has not succeeded. This is part of the purpose of reading the Old Testament for us, to encourage us. This is what Paul writes in Romans 15. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Beloved, as you see the whole history of the Old Testament boiled down to six verses, let your heart soar with hope because your God is a faithful God who will always keep his promises. But beloved, we have even greater reasons to have hope for we see in the second point here, this war reflected in heaven when Satan is thrown down to earth. So we find in verses 7 through 12. And now as we come to verse 7, then the scene changes here to show us what happens in heaven as the battle was raging on earth. You see, as our Lord Jesus was battling, doing battle here on earth against Satan and his demons, Michael, the one who is called one of the chief princes of the angels in Daniel chapter 10, leads the other angels in battle against the dragon and his angels in the heavenly realms. Christ is battling on earth. There's the casting out of demons. There's what he does on the cross. Michael and his angels battle in heaven. You may remember what Jesus said before going to the cross in John chapter 12. He was speaking about his upcoming death on the cross. And he said, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And as Jesus died on the earth, Satan you see, is cast out of heaven. But what does it mean for Satan and his demons to be thrown down to the earth? Well, part of what it means is what it says there in verse 8. He was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. They're no longer welcome. They're no longer allowed to come into the courtroom of heaven. Now, why is the devil in heaven in the first place? Because he comes as the accuser, as the slanderer of God's people. That's what the word devil means. Devil means slanderer. And this is exactly how he's described there in verse 10. The accuser of our brothers who accuses them day and night before our God. Remember, isn't that what we read of in the book of Job? At the beginning of Job, it's Satan who comes to the courtroom of God in heaven and begins to accuse Job before God. Job only loves you because of the gifts you give to him. If you take away all of these things you've given him, he'll curse you to your face. Job is accused by Satan. It's what we saw in our reading in Zechariah 3. Satan there accusing the high priest Joshua before the throne of God. 
Now the reality is Joshua actually had filthy garments on, didn't he? And here's the reality. So do all the children of Adam and Eve born in the ordinary way. For we all are sinners, stained, yes, with the original sin that's imputed to us from Adam and Eve. But not only that, with our own sin, the sin of our own lives has stained us. So it would seem, wouldn't it, that Satan actually has a good case, particularly before the work of Christ. You remember how Paul writes in Romans 3 that God and his divine forbearance had passed over the former sins. And so you can hear, can't you, Satan there coming into heaven and accusing these saints who, whose souls enter heaven, saying things like this, Abraham? God, you can't let Abraham in here. He was a liar. Moses? Really? You're going to let Moses in here? Moses, who disobeyed you and struck the rock twice. David, you've got to be kidding me, God. David, who was an adulterer and a murderer, you're going to let him into heaven? And on and on it would go. But when Christ, you see, when Christ is caught up to God and his throne, when he ascends to heaven, Satan is cast out. Why? Because, you see, Christ entered into the courtroom of heaven, which is also the heavenly temple, and he enters with his own blood, and he pours it out upon the mercy seat in heaven, the heavenly ark of the covenant, we could say. And you see, the dragon then is defeated by the blood of the lamb, not only on earth, but also in heaven. For it is the blood of the Lamb that cleanses God's people from all our sins and covers our sins from view. See, this is the basis in which the Lord rebukes Satan in Zechariah 3. He's able to remove the filthy garments and clothe the high priest with clean vestments because, as he says in that passage, this one who is called the branch, Jesus will come and remove the iniquity of all God's people in a single day. And now clothe God's people with his own righteousness. Therefore, Satan can no longer make any credible accusation. As Paul says in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you see, Satan is thrown out. He's thrown down because Christ, the faithful witness, sealed his testimony with his own blood, the only blood that washes away all our sins. And now, as this song is sung in heaven, now we see in verse 10, the salvation, the power, and the kingdom of our God, the authority of his Christ have come. It's come all the way to the throne of God in heaven. That's glorious news. That's great reason for hope. But did you notice that the way that Christ defeated Satan is the very same way that we as God's people will conquer? Read again there verse 11. It says, and they, 
the people of God, they have conquered him, that is the serpent, by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. You see, as we know, though Satan is a defeated foe, he still wages war against us, doesn't he? And beloved, one of the most used devices that he has is to tempt you to despair, to cause you to become hopeless, especially when you have sinned, when you have fallen to temptation. Because you see, when you are hopeless, you become vulnerable and even willing to think and do all manner of evil. Satan, you see, he accuses you of what you've done and he then says, God can't accept you now. You might as well keep on walking down this road of sin. But dear one, this is where you must do battle. This is where you must fight and overcome and conquer in the very same way that Christ overcomes. That's by his blood, by His testimony. This is what we sang earlier. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. Not my sinless soul. My sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Beloved, you must continue to fight and you fight by wielding the sword of the truth of the gospel, that gospel word that you have repented and you've believed in the finished and perfect work of Christ, your Savior. For as we see in our passage, thirdly, the war continues on earth against Christ's church. That's what we have in verses 13 to 17. Satan has been cast down. We could say it this way, D-Day occurred at the cross, but the war is not over yet. We're still waiting for the complete end for the day like in World War II, Victory in Europe Day, VE Day. You see, though Satan is defeated, he will not give up. But as he comes down, cast down to the earth, he only rages all the more against the people of God. He's like Hitler after the Allied forces landed in Normandy on D-Day. You see, the German generals began appealing to Adolf Hitler to negotiate an end to the war after D-Day occurred. But Hitler did exactly the opposite. In a mad rage, what did he do? He continued to rage against his enemies to try to hurt them as much as possible. One example of this is he, he launched the V-2 rocket campaign against cities in England even up to the last months of the war, he raged. And that's what Satan does. He continues to pursue the woman, the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ upon the earth. And that's what he's been doing for the past 2,000 years. We see it in the time of the apostles. The apostles persecuted by unbelieving Jews, by emperors, It's what we read of in the seven letters. John himself persecuted on the island of Patmos. And it goes on from there to the rest of church history, even to the present day. 
But notice, notice, well, while the serpent rages on, the woman is both provided for and protected by God. See verse 14, it picks up what was spoken of back in verse 6 about the woman going on into the wilderness to a place prepared for her. It adds one detail, though, that verse 6 didn't mention. It adds that she's given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness. This is language alluding back to Exodus chapter 19, where God says to his people there at Mount Sinai, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. In that context, it was referring to the greatest redemptive act of the Old Testament, the first exodus, where God saves his people from Egypt, from Pharaoh, saves them at the Red Sea, and brings them out into the wilderness. Well, it's also what's referred to later in Isaiah 40, verse 31, concerning a second greater exodus to come where it says in those familiar words, they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength, they shall mount up on wings like eagles. You see, this is what's true of the church. God has carried us on eagles' wings, brought us into a place in the wilderness. It's language. It's language that's similar as used in the Old Testament of, of the tabernacle, in a sense, the place in the wilderness It's a picture for us, isn't it, of how as we are in our wilderness wandering on this earth, we are not without provision. And you notice the time frame that's given. We've seen this before, time, times, and half a time, same as three and a half years. Or what's there in verse 6, 1,260 days. Or elsewhere, it's talking of, spoken of as 42 months. And as we've said before, this is referring to that time between Christ's first and second coming. This is our wilderness wandering. And during that whole time, we have a place provided for us to be nourished. You see, just as God gave manna in the desert, just as God gave his presence with his people in the tabernacle, so God does so for the church of Jesus Christ in the wilderness today. He's given to us his word. He's given to us the manna of Christ himself, the Holy Spirit, the communion of saints, the oasis of the Lord's day in this desert world to provide for us spiritually, to nourish us in our wilderness wandering. But not only that, you see how God also provides protection. In verse 15, you have this image of the serpent pouring out water from his mouth to seek to overtake the woman with a flood. Kind of refers to two different things. On the one hand, floodwaters are often used in the Old Testament to speak about persecution or trials or troubles. You think about how in the Psalms, the psalmist often talks about how enemies are surrounding him. It's like waters coming up to his neck or even over his head. Of course, you remember what happened at the Red Sea. There they are trapped and there's waters. So it symbolizes in that sense the persecution and trials that come through the serpent. But notice where this water comes from. It comes from the serpent's mouth. And that's significant in the book of Revelation. You remember how Jesus is described as having a sword coming out of his mouth. 
And so you see these waters coming out of the mouth of the serpent is referring to words, deceptive words, and their power to destroy. Because this is how Satan so often works. It's really how he always works, is through lies and deception, false teaching. That's how he worked it in the garden with Eve. That's how he was working in John's day. In the letters, remember the Nicolaitans, false teachers, Jezebel. That's how Satan still works today. But God protects his people. And the earth here swallows up, opens up and swallows the river. It's an allusion, at least in one sense, to perhaps what happened at the Red Sea opening up. It's also an allusion to what happened to the false priests in Moses' days in the wilderness, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, swallowed up by the ground. So too in our day we could say the Lord protects his people by exposing and judging false teachers in our midst. But beloved, here's the thing. The war still rages on. Satan continues in his fury even until the very bitter end. So we see in verse 17. The dragon becomes furious, makes war with the rest of her offspring. But this is the central message. This is the message really of the whole book of Revelation. Dear people of God, while you're on this earth in your wilderness wandering, and yes, facing persecution, facing trial, facing tribulation, stand firm in the Lord. Do not give in. Do not give up. Continue to fight. Know that your battle is not ultimately against flesh and blood, but it's against the spiritual forces of evil, against those that seek to deceive and destroy. And as the floodwaters come and pursue you, you must continue to fight with spiritual weapons. You fight with prayer. Psalm 32 says this, Therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at the time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. The water shall not reach him because God will hear, Christ will hear in heaven and answer our prayers. And not only that, as lies seek to overwhelm you, beloved, you fight with the word of God. Both by keeping God's commandments, as you see there in verse 17, the laws of the kingdom of heaven, and by holding to the testimony of Jesus. Holding In two senses, on one hand, holding firm to it, not letting go. Believing, yes, that Jesus died for you. But also holding forth the testimony of Jesus. It is by the sword of the Spirit that the kingdom of darkness is overcome. And so let us be those who hold to the testimony of Jesus even unto death. And beloved, in this way, In this way, we too shall conquer. We'll conquer knowing that Christ has already conquered. D-Day has already occurred. Victory is assured. So we can press on by the spirit, by the gifts, by the graces that he has supplied. And we know that this war, to end all wars, will soon be over. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, again, we thank you. We thank you for how your word is that which gives light and insight, but it also gives encouragement and hope. And Lord, we pray that for your children here today, they would know that encouragement. 
as they see the big picture and see their place in it. But Lord, your word also is that which brings reproof and correction, conviction of sin. And Lord, if there are those here who are continuing in rebellion against you, Lord, would they see the futility of such rebellion? Would they see that Christ has conquered and will bring about the very end of this war, victorious over all? Would they defect from the kingdom of darkness and join the armies of the Lamb? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's Sermon Select on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.